How's everybody doing tonight? All right, yes. Uh, most of you have been severely phased by the cold. How's everybody doing tonight? Okay, a few more on this side. There we go. We'll try it one more time. How is everybody doing tonight? There we go. Um, Tonight, um, in the midst of the cold, in the midst of burrowing here in this uh, blessing of a building that we have, uh, we actually are going to start off and pretty much going to start off and carry all the way through pretty heavy tonight. Um, The nature of what this uh, topic is dealing with in this uh, sermon is going to bring up memories in some of your stories. It's going to make some of you curious about what the Lord may lead you through at some point in time in your lives. Um, the reality is, is that there are things that we experience in this life that are not the way that they should be. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. But in the midst of that, we're going to have opportunities to, um, to do something with that for the name of Jesus. I want to begin by um, talking about something that I saw this weekend very terrible thing that I saw come up, uh, heard about on Sunday. Um, Andrew, if you can put this first slide up. Uh, 21 men, Egyptians, uh, Coptic Christians, um, Egyptian Christian men who were murdered by ISIS, and Sunday the video was posted online. It was pretty sobering to look at it, pretty sobering to think about Every one of these names, people who were represented by them, stories that they had. 21 men who all had gone to Libya to look for work. Disjointed, they weren't all together, they weren't on a school trip or anything. They simply had uh, all either individually or in small groups migrated to Libya to to look for jobs. And in the course of that, in in December and January, they were kidnapped uh, by ISIS. And uh, the next thing the world knew was, was what we saw uh, reported on on Sunday. It's an absolutely terrible thing. Um, everything in me is like bubbling up, boiling up, thinking about this. It's how should we respond to this? What should we do? What room is there for evil like this in God's creation? As I was looking for words to try to figure out how to put um, to put some language to the way I felt or at least get guided from scripture on how to respond. It was helpful actually to get a hold of an article that I read by a man named Tom Schreiner. Uh, Tom Schreiner's a, a New Testament um, Paul scholar and uh, is a very well-respected man at South uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He wrote um, five things that we can affirm. Uh, it was very encouraging for me to read this weekend if you're looking for scripture and how you respond amidst situations like this, then I hope this helps you. First thing, that we affirm is this, we are not surprised. We are not surprised. Jesus said that a day was coming even to his own disciples when men would kill them thinking that they were doing service to God. We are not surprised. Number two, we are more, what an amazing phrase, we are more than conquerors. Death cannot separate these men from the love of Christ. Uh, No knife, no matter how big it is, can withhold what the Lord wants to do. He's stronger than them. And these men were in Christ as as you and I, if you believe in Jesus. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Number three, we grieve with those who grieve. The reality is I don't need to grieve for the men themselves. Paul says in Philippians that for me to depart and be with Jesus like right now would actually be far better for me. But the reality is every one of these men, every one of those names represents parents and siblings, children, friends, co-workers, people who are longing um, to see them again, and they won't. But we grieve with those who grieve. We mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. Number four, and this is a hard one, we pray for both our enemies and our suffering brothers and sisters around the world. So the knee-jerk reaction is what should we do to get back at them? When Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he actually gave a commandment that was much, much higher than just revenge. At the same time, there are brothers and sisters around the world right now, people um, in your exact same 
mode of life, whether it's a student, married, parent, that is in a situation right now that is tempting them to stop believing in Jesus. Either facing the threat of death or, or treatment and, and, and punishment that is more severe than we want to talk about. Pray for our brothers and sisters. And the last one, we plead for God's just judgment. We can say, amen, come Lord Jesus. Fix these broken things. Make, make the world new. Make this... Um, over in such a way that these things, these, these martyrdoms, these uh, tears themselves, suffering itself, according to Revelation 21, will be one day a former thing. Come, Lord Jesus. Why does God allow Christians, children of God, sons and daughters of God, love, uh, loved by God, blood-bought lambs of the Lord, what causes God to allow Christians to go through suffering? What purpose does it have? Why is God allowing you in your life right now? There are situations in your life that are very hard and painful. And we're going to get into a variety of what suffering looks like, what struggling and sacrifice can look like in our lives, but what are you going through right now that is giving you an opportunity to do something with the Lord in that? A very hard, painful thing. Tonight, we're going to go all through this, and uh, it's not going to be all uh, morose and sad. I hope you maybe laugh a couple times, but even if not, we're going to praise Jesus. So let me pray, and then we're going to die into this, uh, dive into the scripture. Father, we thank you for the work that you've done in our hearts, uh, for brothers and sisters in this room who believe in Jesus. The reality is, though, is that I have more in common, we have more in common with those men who died than we do some family members who don't believe with our own blood that doesn't understand any of this that we confess to believe. So we pray for you to continue to work in our midst, around the world, give faith and strength to those right now who need it in the most desperate of circumstances. And Father, bless us tonight. Affirm us, meet us in the place, not where we're in the highest prosperity, but where in the deepest possible pain we need you. Father, meet us in those places. And walk with us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue on. Um, in Colossians, we've been in this book for probably about a few months now. Uh, Pastor Mark has done absolutely a phenomenal job teaching through every piece of what we've seen so far. We've seen a whole lot about Jesus. He's all-sufficient. He is the head of the body of the church. He's preeminent. He's the firstborn from the dead. All things are held together in him. Jesus rules and reigns supreme over all things. That's how this letter began. From Paul, the apostle, to this church in Colossae that he hasn't even met yet face to face. But he can affirm things that they have in common because they have a common faith in Christ. And then he begins verse 24 where we pick up and says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So you got to remember he's in prison. He's imprisoned for the gospel message that he's proclaiming. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So what do you do with sufferings? What do we do with sufferings? Was Paul caught off guard by things like this? And I think not. In Acts 9, we read this about his story. This is just after he was first converted. But Ananias, the man who was going to confirm Paul's calling, answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul says later in Acts 20 that he doesn't know what lies ahead of him except for that the Holy Spirit constrains him and tells him that, in every city, in every town, awaits imprisonment and affliction. This is the guy who's bringing the gospel news, the good news that Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose from the grave. He's the King Jesus. This is the man who's the, the apostle of the apostles to the Gentile world. And he's the one who's going to have to go suffer, perhaps the most even, for the name of Christ. Suffering will be the way through which the message is portrayed. Um. He says a weird phrase here, and if, you, uh, if you're, you're reading along, anytime you see lacking and Christ in the same sentence, that doesn't seem right. One way or another, it seems like something might be wrong there. Maybe the ESV got it wrong. I don't think so, uh, but here's what it says. 
He says, uh, after he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So it makes you wonder right away, is, is Paul saying that Jesus had something left to accomplish in his afflictions on the cross? Was there something left to do? Is there something that we have to add to that? And I don't think he's saying that at all because of everything that he's just affirmed. He said statements like, and, and you who are hostile in mind doing evil deeds, you've been reconciled. Jesus reconciled. You made peace, not halfway peace, not part of the way peace, but peace, complete peace by the blood of his cross. I don't think there's anything else that Paul is saying maybe added to the work of Christ. What he is saying is that um, these afflictions are being suffered by Paul for the sake of his body, which is the church. So the body of Christ is the the church, the people of God together. We read a few verses ago in in a few weeks ago's sermon that um, the head of the body is Christ himself. And no matter how hard you try, you can never separate the church from Jesus. No matter how bad the church may look at times, it's still... Jesus' church. So Paul is saying, I think, that at the end of the day, there's still suffering left to do. The church still has more suffering to go on its plate. And if there's any way that he can suffer in a way that may minimize the suffering of others, he's going to do it. And he's he's embodying a biblical understanding of suffering um, that is absolutely amazing. Verse 25, he says, of which I became a minister, a servant, according to the stewardship of from God. This word for stewardship in the Greek is called oikonomia, which is our word for economy. It's this idea that there, there's like a household management. Every, every single thing belongs in its place. There's a plan. There's, a, there's something to be executed. God is doing something according to the stewardship, the plan of God. I was made a minister, a servant. It was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The Lord knows exactly what he's doing, Paul says, in my suffering This isn't an accident. I'm not suffering in spite of the fact that I'm an apostle. I'm suffering because I'm an apostle. And I'm suffering for your sake, the church. But there's this big question. Why does God advance the gospel through suffering? Sure, there are times when he advances it through uh, prosperity. I mean, you see people who, you know, praise Jesus' name after they win the Super Bowl or um, World Series or something like that. But the reality is if you look in Scripture... The overwhelming volume of material we have there leans in the direction of God working, proclaiming his name, his power, his might, his glory during and and through the midst of the suffering of his people. And so there's this idea biblically that suffering personally and corporately as God's people, suffering always leads to glory. Not self-glory by itself, but suffering that leads to an ultimate glory, an ultimate end through which suffering has no part. You see this in Israel in the Old Testament. The people of God who uh, have his name, we just got done journeying through the Exodus book in the previous book that we preached through here at Matthias, that these people were a royal priesthood, a holy nation, but these people were going to bear God's law. And largely their history is a lot of ups and downs, many downs, in which they're going to face exile and suffering because of their sin, because of the ways that other uh, nations uh, fight against them. So there's suffering that leads to glory there. If you look at Jesus himself, um, when we say we want to follow Jesus, I don't know if we're always thinking again about who we're talking about. Because when I think, of yeah, I'll follow Jesus, I'm picturing Jesus ascended right now, sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. He's in a pretty powerful spot. But what we get in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, is this picture of a man who is voluntarily allowing his life to be humbled as much as humanly possible. Paul says to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that others could be brought near to God. Saying things like the first shall be last. Putting himself on the lowest possible place to serve others so that God would be glorified and he would accomplish his mission in that way. There's no other way. That is always the way. That's exactly what we see in Jesus, suffering leading to glory. God calls his people to testify to his name by sacrificing of themselves, sacrificing of yourself, of myself, in your sphere of life, in your level of influence with other people, laying your life down in order to bring people close to the Lord, in order to lift others up to God. There's a spectrum. Because it's one thing to talk about ISIS. But there's a whole lot of other suffering and struggling that 
you and I will go through. Um, there certainly is the, the extreme persecution. Um, at the same time, there's persecution in the form of bullying, of being picked on. Some of you guys right now are, are in situations in relationships, um, friendships in which other people uh, are actually demeaning you and, and slandering you and making fun of you behind your back because you're trying to proclaim the name of Jesus or to live in light of his gospel. Some of you are facing that right now. But there's a few other kinds of suffering as well. Another one is just suffering because of my personal sin. I don't know if you've ever realized this, but, but if you're in Christ, you're not the enemy. Your sin in Christ is actually the enemy, the thing that God is continuing to deal with. You, yourself, are a son of God, a daughter of the king. But your sin will cause you to suffer. It will cause others to suffer. My sin has, is, and probably will continue to cause other people to suffer. And at the same time, I'm suffering because my own sin hinders my walk, trips me up, causes me to be confused about who I really am. So there's persecution, there's my own sin, but then there's also just the state of the world itself. After Genesis 3, the world is broken, and everything in it is actually very hostile toward God. And it may not always seem hostile, but let me share this. Um, I'm a huge Dietrich Bonhoeffer fan, so if I'm going to preach, there's probably going to be a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote at some point in time. So here's my opportunity for one Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote. Bonhoeffer said this, the world will always respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in one of three ways. Number one is submission, uh, submissive acceptance. Okay, so accepting the message, but it's always in submission. Number two is hostile um, rejection against it. Hostile rejection. Not only am I going to disagree with this, I'm going to stomp you out. I'm going to persecute you. And then the third way is calculated resistance. I'm thinking about family members. People who, when you try to ask, hey, do you think maybe we should pray that they kind of skate away before Thanksgiving dinner? Or people who do everything they can just to try to get around and outside of and, and away from the issue so that it doesn't bother their life and the way they have everything nicely organized. So there's a sphere of suffering, sacrifice itself, hard decisions that we'll have to make for the gospel that may sometimes have nothing to do with suffering, but they're still painful. And so um, th there's a variety of stories that, that have intertwined with my own life. You guys, have, if you've been here for a while, you've heard uh, my own story. I mean, no, no, never know my dad. I had a wife who, who, who left for another man. Um, so there, there's pieces of that in my own story. But there's other pieces that are, are, are pretty recent. At the same time, you should know that my life is pretty good right now. Like, I'm, I'm really liking my life. If you've seen my wife, my sons, we have a pretty good thing going on here. And I'll take that. That's just fine. The Lord has seen me through it. But at the same time, um, there are people along the way that, that um, the Lord has allowed me to interact with that have affected me uh, pretty deeply. Back in October, the last time I preached, I talked about a guy named Ed. He's a man who's a friend of mine, terminal cancer patient. Uh, I met him a month after he became terminal. I met him always knowing that he is going to die from this. And we've prayed for the Lord to heal them. We've, we've, we've asked for the Lord to do his thing. But the reality is, is that whether it's now or in 30 years, Ed will meet Jesus. So Sarah and I, my wife and I went over. I had the privilege of dedicating his, his youngest grandchild, uh, a granddaughter named Nora, a beautiful little four-month-old girl that, that we could celebrate and dedicate to the Lord while he was still around. I hate the fact that someday I'm going to have to say goodbye to him. Ed didn't get cancer because he was a Christian. He got cancer because he's living right now in a broken world that still fights against the ways of God. One day, after King Jesus returns and makes all things right, there will be no such thing as cancer and sickness and goodbyes itself. I'm actually a firm believer that goodbyes are, are a product of the fall. We were never meant to say goodbye to anything. So there's Ed. There's um, other examples. I've had coworkers before who've, who uh, in a previous job left high six-figure income jobs, super lucrative, had the house, had the cars, had, had the status, had the vacations that, that, uh, that one particular guy took with his family, and, th and then he left it all to go into ministry. And I, I was with him one day, and I, and I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. How do you go from such an affluent lifestyle down to 
the rest of us? <laughs> How do you transition away from what you were used to? And he just kept telling me over and over and over again. He said, Jared, it's all stuff. It's all just stuff. We'll get used to a smaller house. We'll just buy cheaper cars. We'll, it's, it's okay. We, we, we just can't take the vacations that we took before. It's all stuff. So some hard decisions sometimes need to be made, but for the glory of God, praise God. Uh, when I went to seminary, um, I know we have a significant amount of people here who are at least interested in going to seminary, which I think is an amazing thing. You should know this. Everybody who goes to seminary ends up poor, okay, at some point in time. It just happens, okay? Um, you end up poor. And it, it's pretty tough initially because, like, when I left my previous job working for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, I had a full-time job in sports ministry. It was awesome. It was, it was, it was a pretty good setup, and then you leave what is pretty comfortable and secure, um, a future in that. You leave that to go into another direction because you believe that God has called you in this way. But you leave a guaranteed income and then you take on a, basically a mortgage payment every month that is paying for seminary. That doesn't add up on a balance sheet for those of you guys who are accounting majors and stuff like that. That's probably not the best accounting advice to, to take on. Um, but there's a strange thing that happens. Even in the midst of being discouraged at times when I was separated and isolated and, and worried, man, nobody, nobody understands the struggles we're going through. Is, was it really worth it? Should I have done this? There were times when I would sit and I would just, um, I, I would sit at, a, sit at a lunch table on Covenant's campus and I would just look around and every once in a while I would just say thankful prayers to God, rejoicing because I was looking across the table at other people who have made hard choices to be in this position. Everybody's bringing their bag lunch, right? Nobody has the money to go out to eat. But we're all together in this believing that God has called us to do something more. There's something amazing that happens when you're surrounded by a community of people who are like-minded, who think the same thing, right? You're not trying to keep up with the Joneses anymore. You're just joking about how much you, have, you don't have to eat, right? <laughs> This is randomly an aside. One time, my wife and I decided that we would try to go a month without spending any money at all, like no money. Pay our bills and stuff like that, but like, let's, let's, let's just not go spend any money. I think we, we had to pay for gas. That, that was an exception. And I think milk was the only other one because um, milk a month later is just not, not a good situation. So I remember at one point in time, we're like, we're like diving, you know, digging underneath like in the, the back of our our, our fridge, our cabinets, you know, what do we have here? I remember I found a granola bar that was five years old, and I ate it. <laughs> and you know what? It was still pretty good. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. I think it was one of those, like, bionic Nature Valley ones or something like that. But the, it, it was a hardship. It wasn't, you know, no, nobody was holding a knife to my throat. But it was a hardship. It was an opportunity where we could go a narrow way for the sake of Jesus. And on the front side of it, nothing in us would have wanted to do it. On the back side, uh, I can only see tremendous ways in which the Lord has shown me who he is. Reaffirmed that Jesus is my treasure because I knew then all these other things could not have been. What is he allowing you to go through right now? Maybe it's persecution. Maybe it's a sin struggle that you know has, has been there for forever, it seems like. Maybe it's a hard decision. Should I, should I go this way or that way? Should I, um, should I, should I go the hard way? I'm, I'm, I have everything figured out in this way, but I, I don't know. Some, like, I feel like maybe God's pulling me this way, but it's, but it's so tough to make those sacrifices. What is he allowing you to go through, to suffer through, to sacrifice, to make the hard choices? In order that in the midst of that, while he's working on you, you will have the opportunity to be reaffirmed, to know that at the end of the day, Jesus might be all I have, but he's all I need. Paul keeps going on in verse 26. He says this, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So this word mystery is pretty loaded. Now the Greeks in this day, they would have they had this concept of what mystery was. They, there were mystery religions, mystery cults, things like this that, that involved um, special knowledge and insight, secret knowledge that would only be conveyed and learned by a select few, the initiated. And Paul's using this word, I think like a play on words, because what he actually says here is the complete opposite of that, that the mystery that had been uh, hidden, disclosed for, for thousands of years 
was actually not just revealed to a few, but, uh, but was revealed to eventually all. And we're going to see how that works out here in a second. The mystery that was uh, revealed to all. Um, to them, in verse 27, to his saints, it says, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And we'll pause there. So this mystery, what is this mystery that Paul is talking about? Well, way back in Genesis 12, you have this situation where all things are created really good in Genesis 1 and 2. And by the way, if you want to talk about that, if you want to hash out what that means, what that looks like, what about the days, what about the weird stuff, how should I interpret that, how should I live differently because of that, disciple others because of this, uh, tomorrow night, 7 p.m., I'm going to be teaching on creation. Uh, we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to field questions, talk, just have a good conversation about what it, what it means that God created all things so unbelievably good. But after all things were created really good in Genesis 3, they were broken, terribly broken. Adam and Eve gave up everything in one little rebellion. They left everything behind. Ever since then, everything has been broken in some way or another. And then you have this scene from Genesis 3 through 11 where the world gets progressively worse and worse and worse. And you have the flood with Noah and then you have the Tower of Babel and things like that. That eventually when, when God pursues Abram, who would later become Abraham, I think we're supposed to believe that somehow the answer to sin is going to lie within Abraham's family. Because God says this. He says um, that I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And you're left wondering, how is that going to happen through a man who's as old as, uh, who's as, old as dead and his wife is old and barren? Absolutely unbelievable. What Paul is saying here, what he's about ready to disclose is that Actually, the mystery the whole time was Jesus Christ himself. The mystery was Christ. I have to imagine Abraham. Um, when you know, Matthew talks in Matthew's gospel, he talks about the star rising up as being like the signal indicator of, of like the child was born. I have to imagine Abraham like standing up in heaven like, yes, yes, yes. You know, 2,000 years I've been waiting for this. Here we go. You know, anticipating how is God going to work that out? How is God going to fulfill this plan, going to fulfill these uh, promises? And so we have this mystery um, that has come to the Gentiles, that has come uh, Christ, uh, he says here as he finishes verse 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now remember who he's talking to. These are the Colossians. This is not a special church. It doesn't particularly deserve uh, anything more than Laodicea down the road that's more prominent and more boisterous, it's actually just kind of a no-name place. Uh, way back when, when, when Mark began teaching through Colossians, he had said that an earthquake happens not long after this letter is received by the church. The church is so, or the, the town's so pitiful that they don't even rebuild the town after the earthquake. Now, the, the gloriousness of this mystery is that it's Jesus Christ, the King of all creation, who rules and reigns, who's holding all things together in himself. The Messiah has actually come to dwell through the power of his spirit in you, Colossians, in you, people at Matthias Lot Church. No name Colossae, undeserving Colossae. Nothing to write home about Colossae. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That Jesus actually mysteriously and wonderfully through the power of the Holy Spirit, indwells in the hearts of all believers, individually and making up the church. So it's, it's, it's Christ in you, like inside you, but also Christ in your midst, like within your church. This is, this is an amazing mystery. It's actually been revealed. Jesus was always going to be the answer. But it's interesting, the things that we keep mysterious, the things that we choose to try to hide to hold back in, to shun others away from, the things that we do to preserve the mysteries that we want to continue on in our life, the things that we want to hide from others. I read an article um, over the weekend about a book that was uh, seeking to be published. An author was submitting it in print uh, a number of years ago. Um, went to all the big wigs, Random House, you know, Sutton, all these big ones, trying to, you know, bring the manuscript, submit it. Gets universally rejected by all the big publishing houses. And then go down the next line, then uh, they go to all the medium-level publishing houses, hoping they have a prayer. 
Maybe they'll at least get a meeting. Well, universally rejected strike two, number two. So then what's left are the bottom feeders, the publishing houses that uh, don't sell books at Barnes & Noble, the ones that are trying to save a lot of costs, you know, cut costs in many ways. And eventually uh, a small Australian firm agrees to publish this book as an e-book. Now, if you know anything about how books are like worked out, that means that there's literally no cost on the table for these people. We can create and mass distribute basically a data file. We don't want to waste money on paper. Um, but then what happened, it was right about the time that, that Kindles were be- becoming big, iPads were starting to blow up everywhere. People started reading more books on e-readers, on things that they could, uh, that they could read in public and nobody would know what they're reading. You could be sitting next to somebody thinking that maybe they're just reading their Bible. We're hoping that if you're looking at your e-reader right now, you're reading your Bible. That, that would be great. If you're reading something else, that's a bummer. We won't take it to heart. But, um, but this book, because it was published um, on a hidden platform, so to speak, it actually exploded like wildfire because people could read it in anonymity. And then later... It becomes an international bestseller, picked up by Random House to put in print. And uh, does anybody want to guess what the movie is, by the way? Or what, what the book is? I hear a couple of whispers. You, the, if, the, uh, the first service, I heard somebody say it, but their voice was so faint that I could tell they were like, 50 shades, 50 shades of gray. Like, it's, they, they're trying not to elude. <laughs> they're trying not to elude to the fact that, that yeah, I know the whole story. I've read the book. I have all three. I'm, you know, going to see the movie. Got the stamp, you know. It's amazing that, you know, so, so Solomon Rushdie called that book. He's, you know, called Fifty Shades of Grey. He said it made Twilight look like War and Peace. Um, now, and here's the deal. Um, I'm, like, a personal rule of mine as I try to not critique somebody's work unless I've actually taken it on, listened to it, read it. The reality is I don't even deserve to have an opinion about uh, whatever her name is, uh, book, because I haven't read it. I will probably not read, actually, I'll just say it here. I will not read Fifty Shades of Grey. I want to, like, <laughs> eliminate that, you know, thought from your mind. That'd be really awkward. You come into the church, and we're just sitting in the office, and I'm just reading Fifty Shades of Grey. That'd be, <laughs> that'd be very awkward, actually. But it, it's amazing that we keep, that we choose to keep certain things as mysteries, and then we choose to reveal other things. Um, side note, by the way, if, if we're going to wave the banner on Fifty Shades of Grey, if we're going to jump on, you know, message boards and things like that and, and lambast it in the name of Jesus, then um, in my view, we have to do the same thing for other sexual sins that are, de- are absolutely swallowing whole uh, people around us. If we're going to yell about Fifty Shades of Grey, then we should yell about pornography and trafficking and all these things that are absolutely terrible. The church is actually ahead of culture on some of these things. And we should take advantage of that instead of yelling about Fifty Shades of Grey for two weeks and then going back into our, our hole, you know. Um, but this, this, this whole idea that we keep certain things hidden, that we keep them locked in, that we, that we walk around with something that others can look at us and maybe even think that we're really interested in something, we're really involved in this, we must be about something, but th- they have no way of knowing what it is because... We're, we're taking it on in such a way that it's not obvious. When did we start acting like the gospel was a mystery? If you believe in Jesus, then the mystery's been revealed. The truth has been known. You know exactly how the whole story plays out. Your circumstances may not tell the story, may not tell the story that, that you're awaiting this, this, this awesome glory in God, uh, with God in Christ, but but you know that the meaning of life is Jesus. You know that the purpose of all things, if Colossians is true and we believe it is, that in him all things are held together. Uh, It's it's by him, through him, for him. The purpose of all things uh, is actually for Jesus as well. Somehow Jesus is right at the center of every answer that we're looking for. But why do we walk around and still act like that's a mystery? Maybe it's shame. Maybe it is that we just don't feel like we're emboldened enough. 
Bookmark that in your mind, and we're going to keep going in that um, here in a few minutes. Paul continues on, though. He says in verse 28, Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. Uh, He doesn't say, Him we intentionally live out on mission. Now, he probably assumes that. He's assuming that we're living on mission for Christ, but but we're really good these days at, at, like, talking about the ways to be on mission, to live an intentional lifestyle without ever actually getting to the place where we're proclaiming the name of Jesus. To proclaim something, to announce something is very verbal, very out there, very, uh, very clear, blatant. Um, I, I'm definitely not one of the guys that wants to go leaving my witnessing up to a Christian t-shirt, right? I don't want to be throwing the track on the table, but I have to be careful that I haven't become ashamed to wear the name of Jesus, So him we proclaim. But what about the ways in which it's difficult um, to proclaim Jesus? What what gets in the way of us proclaiming Jesus? There there are 10 things that I've landed on so far. The list probably could keep growing. Uh, But here's the first one. What gets in the way of us proclaiming Jesus? Number one, toiling and struggling uh, with all our energy. Paul is going to talk about this here um, in verse 29 where he says that for this I toil, struggling with all energy his energy, that he powerfully works within me. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the ways in which God has reached into him and breathed his spirit into his lungs to embolden him, to empower him, toiling and struggling with only our energy. When I'm doing something on just my own power, I'm pretty sure that's, those are the times that I've either, I've been selfish on both ways, where I over-engage and over-push it for pride's sake, or I choose to not say anything and under-engage and shrink back in my own energy. I'm, I'm too tired, you know. Or we're really going to go after it and get it this time, you know. So toiling in my own energy. Uh, number two, being on mission for Jesus on our terms. Uh, so it's, it goes something like this. You get up at 6.45 was the first service. I don't know that I would say that for the, I mean, it might be for you guys. I don't know. Um, so you get up at, you know, 10.45. We'll just, we'll just, Safe, safe assumption, okay? So you get up, and it's like, I'm gonna get up at 1045. I'm gonna be reading my Bible from 10 to 1015. And on the face value, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. It's a, it, if you read your Bible for 15 minutes every day, absolutely engaged, then praise God. I think that's awesome. At the same time, the danger in that is when you get into such fixed routines is that all of a sudden you begin to ask for the Lord to do things on your terms and live out on mission on your terms and I'll be willing to go help people from 7 to 8 p.m. at night, or, or I'll, 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 give, um, I'll give next, next week when I get my paycheck, but I won't, I won't sacrifice anything else now because I kind of have to save up and have my own thing. It's, it's very dangerous when we are on mission uh, on our terms. Number three, what gets in the way of us proclaiming Jesus? Allowing results to dictate your effort. So you've been there. You've, um, you've walked into a room, and you've scanned it, and you've already figured out there's nobody in here that will probably be converted today. There's nobody in here. There, there, there's no way. I've known that guy for forever. I know what she just said about so-and-so. I, I just, I think their heart's too hard. And what that actually reveals is that we're proclaiming Jesus as like a give and take, like, God, I'll, I'll, I'll proclaim the gospel if you're going to do something. And Paul actually doesn't even qualify the statement. He just says, back at the start of verse 28, him we proclaim. He says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we we may present everyone mature in Christ. There's no condition on that. We're not going to wait till we feel like the field is ready, and then we're going to... And even in saying that, I want to be careful that you don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't use discernment. I'm not saying that you have to seek the, the, the Spirit's help in figuring out when is the right time to say this, when is not. But you can proclaim Jesus... Um, in all circumstances, um, while being sensitive to how God leads you. So allowing results to dictate your uh, effort. Uh, number four, proclaiming morality instead of Jesus. Uh, it, Paul doesn't say, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that homosexuality is wrong, you will be saved. He doesn't say, if you confess with your mouth 
and believe in your heart that sex before marriage is wrong, you'll be saved. But the message that we send, the, the, unfortunately, the message that's received often from unbelievers is that we're actually preaching something that if they just lived like better people, we would go away. I mean, that's, that, that's so far from the truth. So very far from the truth. Now, there's a place for morality, for growth, for ethics, for, for God changing our minds and our hearts um, on how we should view certain things, what we should see as right and wrong in his eyes. But all that comes after uh, the receiving of Jesus. First, God changes our heart. Only God can do that. So, proclaiming morality instead of Jesus. Him we proclaim, not morality. Number five, proclaiming the church, not its head. I don't know if you've ever delighted. Uh, it's a good thing to be happy that somebody comes into church, but if you've ever thought that the work was done just because they came to church, or you, I'm going to get them to the doors, and I'm going to let Mark just preach, and they're probably going to get saved because, you know, he's awesome, you know. Mark, Mark will do it, you know. Or once they get there, man, they hear, they hear Brandon, they hear the worship team, they just hear the, the amazing stuff, like that's going to do it. And God works through all that stuff. But here's the thing, I believe that it is at least possible that there are people that have been with Matthias since day one that may not be believers. We're not supposed to be surprised if that happens because some people can fake it really well. I hope that's not the case. I mean, we try to have a lot of layers of shepherding in the way so that we can guard against that. Or that if we um, have embraced somebody that we continue to train them up to show them what it looks like to believe, but... We have to be careful to proclaim the head, which is Christ. Proclaim Jesus and let his church do its thing. Uh, Number six, what gets in the way of us proclaiming Jesus? Worrying more about how we look on mission than being on mission. So missional strategy is good. Um, How we're going to have a plan of attack or or a plan of mission uh, together, maybe friends getting together saying, man, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to this place. We're going to buy coffee from this person. We're going to engage this person. We're going to just... We're going to be with them for, for a long time in this. That, that's all awesome. You're, you're committing to a wonderful thing. But um, it, it's a far cry from that to the point where you're more worried about how you look, how you're perceived by others being on mission. When I, uh, the church I grew up, anybody grow up in a, a pretty formal church where you dressed up? Okay, there's a couple, yes. A couple like angry hands, like yes, I was, <laughs> maybe dressed up every week. Um, so, I actually enjoyed as a little kid like dressing up and like putting on my khakis and going to church and I just felt like it was more special or cool or something. The the temptation actually flip-flopped when I came to Matthias because I I would get home and as I would go looking for my clothes and seeing what I was going to change into after work to, to wear to church, I was looking for jeans that had enough holes in them so that I could wear it to church. You know what I'm saying? That I could... Like, man, I gotta, like, I'm on mission, you know, I'm on mission, but I'm actually more concerned with how people are just looking at me. So we have to be careful about that. Number seven, what gets in the way of us proclaiming Jesus, witnessing only through good works. Amazing things that we've had a chance to do in the city through We Love St. Charles. Uh, Backpacks, coat drives, um, a lot of manual labor on houses. You ever been in those situations where you have a neighbor, you have somebody uh, back home or somebody that lives around you that you can serve them in some way. We have a neighbor and, and, and I try to, to shovel his snow when we can. We, he asked me to, he's an old man, he's like 80,000, 80, so he's pretty old. <laughs> but he asked me to, to he's, he's actually hurt right now, so this is, I feel bad for, for saying that about him, but um, he wouldn't deny it. He's really old, he knows that. Uh, okay, so he hurt himself. He hurt himself a while back. He had a hip fracture. That's, that's not your average young guy injury. You know, so he had a fracture in his hip. So we were talking a couple weeks ago, and he said, hey, what you can, uh, it would really be helpful if you could um, pick up my paper in the mornings and just set it by my door. And so I'm like, okay, that's actually a pretty kind of cool old man, really easy way to, to serve somebody. Now, I know my neighbor's a Christian. He and I have had those conversations. We've talked. We've had really, really good fellowship. But suppose he's not. And suppose I bring his newspaper up to his door every day. And then I'm going to church and I'm saying, man, I'm just living on mission for Jesus. Bringing his newspaper up to his, up to his door. I'm showing the love of Christ. And in the reality, you probably are showing the love of Christ on some level. 
At the same time, when did I ever think that in me bringing his paper to his door every day, that somehow he is going to look on that, and after enough time, he's just going to say, man, Jared really believes in Jesus. I mean, think about that. Like, is it, is it after the sixth driveway that you, sh- that you shovel the snow that they say, man, that guy must be a Christ follower, you know? Unless you're like shoveling John 3.16 into their driveway or something like that. I mean, we have to be careful in this because, because a piece of this, right service, living, living in such a way that we're ready to serve people, that we're willing to serve them and, and not have hangups, not have uh, conditions. You know, I'll keep serving you if you accept Christ. We never, ever, ever, ever want to become that. So being willing to serve, even just for the sake of the calling of serving, but in all of our service, in every time that we have an opportunity to do something in the name of Jesus for somebody, it's with the hope that the day, the moment could come. God, uh, make me ready. If, if the moment is there, help me, to, help me to proclaim Jesus. Help me to ask a question. Help me to put a hand on their back and, and, and have something of substance to say about my Savior. And number eight, what gets in the way of us proclaiming Jesus? Fearing men or women more than God. This is really tough for people pleasers like me because you enter into a conversation and right away in your mind, you're trying to size up a lot of things. How much authority do they have? What kind of clothes are they wearing? How are they carrying themselves? How, how have they treated me in the past? What do they drive coming up here? What, what's their schedule like? Are they busy? You know, you're doing all these things and all of a sudden, if, if you're not very careful, you can become afraid of this person and intimidated by them when you're actually the one who's a child of the king of the universe. Where does the power actually lie in that, in that situation? So being afraid of men or women more than God. Number nine, not believing the gospel is true for all. It's, um, I was with a group of people the other day that um, the conversation literally got to a point where somebody had said, well, I, I, I don't care if they believe in Jesus because God listens to all the prayers of Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and everything like that. <laughs> and uh, it's like one of those, like I'm kind of biting my teeth. Uh, I, was, I wasn't like an invited guest in this, and so I'm, I didn't want to like ruin my friends. You know, I like blow up a bomb and then I walk away and never see them again. Then my friend has to pick up the pieces for months and months to come. The reality is they're wrong. The gospel, if we believe it's true, then we believe it's true about all truth, all life, all people. All people were made in God's image, even if they don't believe in Jesus. The gospel that Jesus died for our sins, raised from the dead, to have victory over all things, I believe that that's true at the expense of every other religion. I believe and have to believe that it's not enough that people believe in something. So, number 10. What gets in the way of us proclaiming Jesus? Judging our own effectiveness. This ties into last week. The accusations, the opportunities there on the table. You start to walk in, you start to pick up your phone, and then all of a sudden, all these, all these, um, these lies start creeping into your mind. Well, you, you haven't believed for that long. Like, who do you think you are? What if they ask that question? You don't read your Bible enough. You, you haven't prayed in a couple of days. And here's the deal, regardless of how much we may mess up in our Christian walk, every single one of you and me in here who believe in Jesus are a blood-bought lamb of the Lord. Judging our own effectiveness. It's, you know, the story of Paul itself is this story of the most improbable person becoming the way through which this news was spread. The gospel story is his, the most unlikely means by which God works. We would never expect him to work out the way it did, the way it does. So when you enter into that situation, continue to pray through those things as they come into your mind. God, bind me from the lies of the enemy. Help me to believe that if I believe this, then that means something, that I have a right to say something, that, that if they have a need, I have something that is meaningful to them. Whether they accept this or not, I have the answer. I know I have the answer. And it's Jesus. But this toiling, as he said in verse 29, for this I toil, struggle, all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Um, you know, this energy is, uh, it's a painful process. Uh, 
the way that the Spirit often works within us. Because I think if, if you were like me, you would think, well, if I can, God, I really want to be used by you, but you're really thinking about like a cake way to be used. Like, God, I just want to, you know, go do your will and serve you and help uh, homeless people on an all-inclusive resort down in uh, Cancun. Uh, what, anything like that would be great, you know. No, I mean, the reality is where, where God leads you to proclaim it, it, there's a reason why places are dark. There's a reason why light hasn't come into darkness. And it's a very painful thing to be led by the Lord, to be led by the Spirit with the energy of Christ to intervene in those situations. You may think that your energy's run out. You may feel beat up. I promise you right now that if we scan this whole room, everybody in here has something, has a story, has has um, a baggage of some way that, that involves ways in which you've been persecuted, ways in which your own sin has caused you to, to almost lose hope, or ways in which you've been so discouraged by the world around you for one reason or another. All those things act like a wall. Uh, any, any runners runners in the room, self-proclaimed, like the ones who do are like proud to raise their hands, and the other 99% are like, no, um, very... <laughs> Any anti-runners in the room, I guess that'd be everybody else. Um, there's this thing that happens when you run a race, especially a long race. Your energy runs out. Okay, your, your body was, <clears throat> I think we were probably made by God to run away from like cheetahs and lions and stuff like that. So when you try to run uh, for two miles uh, or longer, so just say longer for the sake of the conversation, it won't make me look so bad. Um, when you try to go beyond what seems like it's within your capacity to, to act, you begin to hit something which is called the wall. And as your, your immediate energy reserves run out, you think that this is all going to come crashing down. I'm going to fall on my face. I probably will die on this track. Um, and then something pretty amazing happens. Then you actually have hidden stores of energy within your body that are created for purposes like this. Again, probably just so you can barely escape the, the jaws of the lion kind of thing. Um, this, this same thing happens, I think, on mission. Because we talk about the Holy Spirit a lot when we talk about the ways that we want to feel in worship, the ways that we want to feel in other situations. And the Holy Spirit definitely is relevant to feeling, but I would love to talk more about the Holy Spirit as the agent of God's mission. The book of Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit bringing the gospel message through men and women who are otherwise incapable of doing it beyond boundaries they thought they couldn't cross with capabilities and abilities that they didn't have. It's not that they didn't know they had it. They flat out didn't have it. Paul's saying, I struggled. I'm struggling with all his energy. Remember, Paul's in jail. And what can he do? <laughs> I mean, what, you, you may feel chained by your circumstances. Like, what can I do, Lord? With the power of the Spirit, it is limitless to what the Lord can do through you. But it's painful. It's painful because they say no. It's painful because the people who were supposed to teach you how to do these things never were there for you. It's painful because of rejection. It's painful when you look at your own self and you cannot believe that you're still this way. It's painful going to places that are very scary. There's always a cost. There's always a sacrifice. What's your pain right now? Maybe it's a persecution. Maybe you're being teased. Or maybe somebody teased you way back when and that just hasn't left you. Maybe it's affected the way that you see your, your self-confidence. Maybe it, it's affected even the way you see yourself in Christ and the ability or lack thereof, you think, to, to be used by God. Maybe it's, maybe it's your own sin that, um, that you're just tired of. Maybe it's the lies that, that you know, the enemy speaks that he's trying to convince you that you really don't belong in any of this. Don't you remember what you did? What is your pain? I'll say this, one of my greatest pains, and I've, I've had pain in my life, you know this, um, even in the midst of a wonderful life right now, the greatest, no comparison, pain in my life is my grievance when I think about all the ways in which my friends and my family would say Jared was different because he was just a good guy. I'm grieving all the ways in which I missed opportunities. 
I'm grieving all the times that I was a coward. I'm grieving the other times that I shared Jesus, but it was totally about me. I pushed them away. We're going to have an opportunity to respond and worship here in a moment. And this is the opportunity to proclaim that the mystery has been revealed and not to ignore the pain that we have, the ways that, that, that cause you to hesitate, the things that, that make you doubt yourself, the things that you're tempted to clean up and hide in your e-reader so that when you show up to church, you can look like you fit in. All of these things that have caused us pain, we have an opportunity to acknowledge them and lay them at the feet of Jesus and say that, you know what, your mission is going to go through, your name will be proclaimed, not in spite of the fact that they're suffering in my life, but because of the fact that they're suffering in my life. I will not let this stop me from proclaiming the name of Jesus any longer. This is who I am. Um, I want to read this passage. And I want to give you a prayer uh, before we close out. In 2 Corinthians 4, it says this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let, shine, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and also so we speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence for it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So do we, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day and think of that pain that thing that came into your mind for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal be patient you may not see it. You may not see the way that the Lord is working in this. You may not see the way out. But I promise you this, he will see you through it. One way or another in this life or the next, King Jesus will have victory over your suffering, over your struggles. You will reign and rule with him. We will together mature in Christ, one church, one people, not one that sprinted ahead and others who are far behind. One church locked arm in arm saying, King Jesus, King Jesus, King Jesus. And this is who we are, his people. I want to leave you with this prayer. Take this with you. Pray this out and see where the Lord leads you. God, help us treasure Jesus so much, so much, that we are willing to be led through anything, anything to proclaim him. That's the faith I want to have. That's the faith that I need to have, the faith that stands up when the storms come, when the waves crash that's the faith I want to share with my wife. That's the faith that we want to teach our boys, our beautiful boys, so that they don't go running away from Jesus when it gets hard, but to him. That's the faith that we want to communicate to others, that there will be hard times, but don't lose heart. Christ has overcome the world. That's the faith that we have access to together, my friends. That's the faith in which we can boldly stand and proclaim the name of Jesus. God, I pray for my friends tonight. I pray that you would give us a, a unified um, sense of, of our need for Jesus. I do pray that you would bring us to the end of ourselves so that we would need him more. Make us more like Christ. Make us more like Jesus in the way that, that he laid himself down for the sake of his brothers and sisters, for the glory of your name. Make us in that way that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. I pray that you would help us to not ignore or skate away or cover up or hide the pain that you have allowed us to walk through, but 
Help us in this time to lay it at the feet of the cross, that we would find victory, not in running away from our pain, but in acknowledging the righteousness, the rule, the reign, the victory, the power of Jesus Christ.